appropriate. Now we've just gone too far on this, haven't we? If you want to open to Exodus, we started last week uh, a new series, uh, Journeying Through Exodus. And, um, well, basically, we didn't really talk about Exodus last week. We talked about the end of Genesis. We set the groundwork uh, and, and kind of explained how Genesis ended so that as we get into Exodus, we really understand where the people, uh, the Israelite people are, what God has been doing in and through them, so that when we get to this place and we start exploring what has happened, that it'll have a far bigger meaning for you. So there's two major themes. We, we briefly talked about them last week. They're going to pop up over and over and over again throughout the book of Exodus. The first one is the sovereignty of God. God is at work all through the ending, well, all through Scripture, of course, but as we read through the end of Genesis, God was at work uh, saving the Israelite people from famine through this um, through uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's offspring, specifically Joseph. And so we can see God at work rescuing his people from unique uh, events. And then the second theme is all about God's glory. And, and this can be a very misunderstood theme throughout Scripture. Sometimes you can think of it as like, man, God's trying to like puff himself up so he's got this huge ego and he needs us to like somehow bend our will to him so that he can receive glory and honor. And, and that's the exact wrong way to think about God's glory is what God is trying to do is he's trying to show all mankind, and, and here he's, we're going to talk about this for the next few weeks, he's showing the Egyptian people that your gods, that your leaders, that your rulers, they have nothing compared to who God is. And that God alone is worthy of worship and praise, and God is merciful and redemptive, and yet there's also a sense of consequence and discipline for those who disobey. And that doesn't only go for the Egyptians, but we're going to see that goes through the Israelites over and over as they're wandering through the wilderness. But God's name, his fame, his glory is not because he's kind of egomaniacal, it's because nothing else in the world compares to him. Nothing else will give you purpose and meaning and hope and a future. And so even when we as humans exalt other things in the place of God, and, and so we're going to read about some of the issues that were then, but, but thinking of it from our own culture now is, is maybe money or fame or maybe even social media presence or influencing ability or whatever it might be, is those things we've exalted to the place of God. And God's trying to break those down so that we would see, man, there's nothing compared to him. And when we give up all of those things, what we gain is infinitely more valuable. And so think of God's glory in that sense, is God's trying to show the other nations, specifically through the Israelite people, that he is at work, that he is sovereign, and that he alone can save. So we've seen God's sovereign plan in action a little bit already, and we're going to continue seeing that. But then at the end of Genesis, we had this unique thing happen. So in Genesis 17, God promises uh, uh, that the land that the people are going to inherit is what? Anybody? Canaan. Thank you, Phil. Phil was the only one? No, it's okay. Everyone else is just too nervous to say it. That's okay. Um, by name in Genesis 17, this is your promised land, Canaan. And so they get there. And it starts going pretty well, and then this famine hits, and God takes them out of Canaan into Egypt. And we, the reader, are kind of sitting here thinking, okay, well, well, God, you've made this promise to Abraham that through, through your, through your uh, lineage that all the world is going to be blessed. And, and so we can see that happening, 
because all those nations all around Egypt would have died had it not been for Joseph and, and the dreams that God gave him and, and the wisdom he gave him to make a plan so that people would live. So God is at work there, but, but he's also taken his people out of the land that he has promised for them. And so that's kind of how Genesis ends with this. It's kind of unsatisfying in the sense of we see one promise being fulfilled, but we're still waiting for this other one. And so that's the journey that we're going to take here this morning. We're going to read uh, together verses 8 uh, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. Um, partly because if we just read the end of one, it would be very, very depressing because it's just, it's a lot of bad news. But in the beginning of chapter 2, we're going to find hope. So let me just, before we read, let me just conclude with this. We read the first seven verses last week, which basically say this, is that the nation of Israel, as they've come into Egypt, they've been given the land of Goshen, uh, and, and Joseph and his brothers and his generations have all passed on now, but God has been at work and the people have grown, it says in verse, uh, verse 7, ex- they've multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So this is the context to where we start in verse 8. It says this. Now there arose a, a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, uh, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters, sorry, taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, uh, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives say to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are, are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. But then Pharaoh commanded all his people Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Le- took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with pitamin and bitch, Sorry, that was terrible. That is online for all of my life now, isn't it? Oh, Greg. There is no recovering. <laughs> Thank you. 
dear. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I, I tried to just go right through that, but there was no saving it. Okay. We're going to skip that verse. She dabbed it with that stuff. She put the child in it and placed it among uh, the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, Greg, shake it off. <laughs> Not good. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While the young woman walked beside her, or sorry, beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds, sent her servant women, uh, and they took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when she grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and became her and he became her son and she named him Moses because she said I drew him out of the water so even in the midst of kind of how chapter one ends it's just awful and there's just oppression and slavery that that most of us in the world cannot even relate or imagine to in the slightest bit and yet as we begin chapter two you see that God is still at work in the midst of awful awful circumstances and so I just want to remind us that as we read or as we discuss kind of this end of chapter one and, and the awful things that happen is that God is still at work. And despite Pharaoh trying to do everything he can to hurt the nation of Israel, God says, no, I have plan and I have purpose in the midst of this. But I also want you to notice that he doesn't just immediately rescue them and have no more pain and hurt. There's a, there's a long plan of salvation that God's at work in through this and, and specifically through Moses and, and as we read about him we're going to understand more and more of that but I just say that just so that you're reminded that as we leave this place later on this morning that as we go man God is at work in the mess is the reminder that that doesn't mean the mess gets fixed tomorrow the mess might last for a while but God is still at work in this so I want to clarify a couple of things just as we begin, because as verse 7 ends, it, it looks like there's hope. There's hope that people are growing strong in the land, they're becoming fruitful, they're multiplying. Uh, they're back to Genesis, right? Is, is they're being fruitful and multiply, they're growing. God's people are, are going to accomplish great purposes. But then a new a king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now that might be a strange verse that you might be like, hey, how could they not know who Joseph was? And so this is one of the moments that how you read the Bible comes into play and, and recognizing the Bible for what it is, how it's written, and what its purpose is, is very important. If we think of the Bible predominantly in our time now as this exists for us to give us all the information so that we can know everything that happened in history through the people of God, well, then we're going to be rudely disappointed because that's not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible, it was, it, especially this 
Pentateuch part, this is written to the Jewish people to remind them of their history and that God does not abandon them, but he is at work within them. And so there's all kinds of context that is just largely missing for us, the reader. And so what that means is that we have to do a lot of homework to really study kind of history and culture. And so when we read things like, man, there's this new king over Egypt, like, like how long has passed? Well, later on in Exodus, it tells us that they're uh, between when the people went into Egypt, became slaves, and then, and then began the Exodus journey, that there's 430 years. We're going to read that later on in Exodus 12. And you might be thinking, man, like from now's perspective, like we really would have written that in right at the beginning and given us that context. But that's for our benefit, that's how we would want it to be written, and we need to remind ourselves that the Bible is written differently. The Bible is an ancient, uh, especially the Old Testament, is ancient writings that we simply don't have all the information in it that, in a sense, for us to be satisfied. It does have everything in it that we need to know for who God is, for his plan of salvation, for everything that we need to know about him and lots of times, you probably had this in Sunday school. How many of you were Sunday school teachers at one point? And you had a kid ask you a question that you just did not have the answer to. And you're just like, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Don't ask that one. Let's move on. And, you know, like, that's just the reality is there's so much in there where you, you read a passage and you just kind of wonder, man, for my own sake, I wish there was a little bit more in there. I wish more clarity was given. But again, the Bible's not this history book. The Bible is the story of God's redemption of his redemptive history through his people, ultimately leading to the story of Jesus Christ. And so there's lots written in it that we can know. There's some that we are left to kind of speculate on. And my argument would be speculation usually leads down the wrong path. But there's lots that can be known if we simply study more diligently, do a lot of homework, and read a lot of extra sources to try and be clear about this. And so somewhere in these 430 years, a new pharaoh has risen over Egypt. And it's not as though he didn't know who Joseph was. Rather, if you kind of think about it in this context, as if my great-great-great-great-grandfather was best friends and made a pact with Phil's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, does that mean that I'm necessarily going to honor that pact generations and generations later? Now, the honorable thing would be to do that. But here the point is, the, the Pharaoh is looking at this and going, man, these people are growing too much. And I have no allegiances to Joseph. That was many generations ago. It does not matter for our purposes now. And so I'm not going to honor that commitment that I made or that my great-great-grandfather, however many greats it was, I'm not going to honor that anymore. We have to deal with them because we're fearful that if war breaks out, that they're going to side against us and that they're going to fight against us and they're going to flee the land. And so it kind of sounds like, man, a lot happened between verses 7 and 8 that we just don't have. And it's not there because it's not necessary to the story of what God's trying to tell us and show us. There is context that we can fight to, and there's some that we're never going to know. And this is just true of just kind of normal life. Uh, I was reminded of this this week when, uh, how many of you, maybe this is embarrassing to ask, how many of you really like to look at your Facebook memories from years ago and be reminded of things that happened 10, 12 years ago? Nobody but me. Okay, good. So I, uh, 
I happened to glance at it. Uh, no, I, I was looking through it because I thought it was really interesting. And 12 years ago, there was this memory that popped up this week, and I had no idea what I was talking about. I had written something, and it sounded significant, but I missed it completely. I don't have any idea what it was about. And all of a sudden, I'm like, man, I, I got to like dig for context to try and figure out what was I talking about? Because this sounded significant in my life. And, and the truth is, that's only 12 years ago, and I don't remember it that happened to me. So when we're talking about the Bible written thousands, especially the Old Testament, thousands of years ago, is there some context that we can explore and that we can find, and there's some that we're not going to be able to find? And so I simply had to go like this. Uh, Twelve years ago, I don't know what happened. I should probably work on my memory, but I'm never going to know. And I just had to move on past that. Maybe that was a significant moment in my life, kind of that idea of like, man, I'm never going to forget this feeling. How many times have we said that only to five, ten, twenty years later? Somebody could talk to us about that, and we wouldn't even remember it. There's so much that happens in our lives, let alone the thousands of years of biblical history for us. So the simple point is that the Pharaoh is fearful, and so he oppresses them, and he puts them into kind of slave labor to build things. And and actually, if you go into kind of historical archaeological writings, you'll find uh, these two locations, Pithom and Ramses. Uh, They're called things different now, but you'll actually find them and you can see, and they are great wonders of architecture in the sense of how did this nation build these things? Well, the Bible tells us. It just tells us very, very briefly. But verse 12 has this really, really key thing for us. And this goes back to something we talked about last week. It says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they what? Does that make sense? Kind of goes against logic, doesn't it? The more that you oppress someone, the more that they thrive. And what we're supposed to see in this is that in Pharaoh's plan to do harm against the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, God goes, no doesn't matter what you do. I'm going to grow them, and I'm going to increase them. Because they're my people, and I've made a covenant and a promise to them. Genesis 50, 19, that we looked at last week, uh, Joseph writes, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I know I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again, is if there's one thing that you kind of stick with in your own life, is that as you go through whatever it is that you're going through today, and tomorrow, and the weeks ahead, That those that mean evil or harm or destruction against you, and and that doesn't just mean people, but the spiritual forces that exist, Satan is trying to actively discourage and frustrate you. And God says what what he or they mean for evil against you, God is a God of redemption who is at work. And he's going to use those things in your life for his glory so that other people would see his name and so that they would go, I need that God. And so, friends, our hurt and our pain has purpose. And, and just to kind of step back and look at this from a macro view is most of us, I don't want to speak for everyone, but most of us have simply no idea of how awful this life was compared to the things that we are going through. It says that they were ruthlessly made the people work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service. And so these first few verses, it's like, man, it went from really good and God seemingly blessing and saving all these nations to now that nation has turned their back against God. And it seems like, God, why wouldn't you just rescue the people right away? And, and well, 
God has a different plan. And so as we keep reading, we come to this verse. Then king, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, okay, so he's fearful. Can't control the population of these people. So he makes a plan. Uh, and this is not like a suggestion. Commentators just talk about, uh, we're left to speculate whether the Pharaoh commanded this with a sense of, if you do this, there'll be wealth in it for you. Maybe all of everyone else will be a slave, but maybe you won't. Or maybe it was simply a threat of death, and, and we don't know. But the Pharaoh commanded, you, you're going you're gonna to kill all the baby boys that exist. Now again, just real quick side note. Does this sound like anything we read recently in the New Testament? Right? We just went through Advent season. As Jesus gets born, and, and what do we read? The exact same thing. Right? So uh, all I say that for is, so as we read through Exodus, we're, we're looking ahead, and we're pointing to Jesus ultimately. And so we need to read kind of with that in mind. But um, what we see that's really interesting, and I want to note this because we may l overlook it. How many names outside of the people of Israel in the first few verses of chapter 1, but how many names do you see between verses 8 and 15? Did you notice the Pharaoh isn't named? Now, historically, and again, for our purposes in the modern world, wouldn't that be a lot easier if the Pharaoh was named so that we could just historically kind of trace it and figure it out? He's not named, but who is? Two random little midwives? They're named. And you might just read right over that and think it has no significance. But based on the context of this and, and the fact that no names are given, even, even when it gets to Moses, well, his name gets given at the end of the text, but it doesn't say his father's name. It doesn't say his, uh, his, his mother's name. None of those are given, but these two women are listed. So again, this is a different way to communicate than we communicate now. We would look at it historically to go, man, this pharaoh existed so that we have a time frame for a reference of... Uh, but that's not the writer's point here. The writer's point is that, look, God's at work. And there are faithful people. Shipra and Pua refuse to obey God. And notice what it says. Why? Because they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They feared God even when everything was falling apart in their lives. Even when their whole nation was being enslaved. Even when kids are about to be killed, all these things... They don't know God's plan of salvation. Uh, God's going to predominantly use Moses to, to communicate that message. And yet it still says they feared God. They knew what was right, and it didn't matter what the circumstances were. They were going to fight for what was right and what was true. Now, again, the reason these two women are named, well, let's say this, one of the reasons that the two women are named is because the main characters of the story are not always the main characters of the story. What the narrator for us is trying to do is he's trying to point out, I'm not going to name Pharaoh, I'm not going to name all these other people, but here's two faithful women who obeyed God and who are, in essence, a very real part of the redemptive story of his, the history of, of Israel. Now, it's really interesting because even kind of moving forward, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but that's okay. Uh, even moving forward, we have Pharaoh's uh, mom, or sorry, Pharaoh's mom. Moses' mom makes a plan of how to save this child. Moses' sister goes to stand at a distance. It's Pharaoh's 
daughter that comes down. And so for those of you who, you know, are reading intently, who's the hero of the story so far? It's all women, right? And I think this is important to note because sometimes the Old Testament gets viewed as this, it's very patriarchal and women aren't important and only men were important. But what you see in the text is that the men are being kind of pushed back as they're unimportant, almost irrelevant, and look at the faith of these women. And so the the point as you read through the Old Testament is God is constantly reordering things back to his good intent. In Genesis, when God created man and woman, what did he create them? Equal. Both in the image of God. And so sometimes we look at this and we go, man, the, the... Old Testament is so anti-woman when what's really happening is more often than not, the historical writers of the Bible are simply stating things the way they were, not stating the way things should be. And sometimes we have a hard time with that. As I remember reading through the story of, of, of Gideon and um, it's a really graphic story about these people trying to uh, come and sexually assault these angels. And so they go into this home, and, and, and Gideon offers his daughters in place of his guests. And, and you're kind of like, this is crazy. And so often I've had people go, see, see, God's okay with this. But when you read through the story, the whole point is that Gideon is a coward who will not do what's right. And so we need to read the Bible in that context and to see that a lot of times it's not making moral statements in Moments like this, or, or even in this sentence where we read that the midwives kind of lie to Pharaoh and go, well, actually, they just give birth real fast. Like, I don't really think that's what's happening. And, and it's not, nowhere does it state that this is a good thing. And so we just need to read with that in mind and see that what God is doing is he's elevating these women in the role of the salvation of the history of Israel. Right in the beginning of Exodus, we see these women being exalted. I think that's huge. I think that's so important, especially when we think of it like, man, it's Abraham's family. Yeah, but Abraham did a lot of dumb stuff if you read through Genesis. Oh, then it's Isaac's family. Isaac was even worse. Jacob, Jacob was even worse, right? Like, just see God's using very broken people. But God made a covenant to Abraham and to his family, and he continues to do that covenant all the way till, I'm on a hobby horse here, I'm sorry, but all the way till we get to uh, Matthew chapter 1, and you read about the lineage of Jesus, and who do you have in the lineage of Jesus? There's four named women, and women weren't named in genealogies at that time. So you can just kind of see what God's doing if we choose to kind of read it in the way that God intends. Okay, sorry, back to the text. Pharaoh is, is so fearful of these people that he's, he's somehow tried to get the midwives to kill the, these babies. They refuse. They honor God with what's right. And so Pharaoh gets even more scared and frustrated and angry. And so he makes the command. And you see, I've missed this every time I've read this. What is the beginning of verse 22? Who does Pharaoh tell this to? Who's Pharaoh's people? All of the Egyptians. So he's literally saying, to, he's issuing a decree nationwide. If you're walking down the street and you see a Hebrew baby boy, you throw him into the Nile and you kill him. Like, can you imagine this kind of world? Now again, 
Does everyone do that? I don't know. That's not the point. The point of the text is trying to tell us that Pharaoh's command is so strong to all of his people that if you were an Egyptian, you were now expected to go out and kill baby boys and probably were rewarded for it. Again, one real quick side note, and this one will be quick. But we're going to talk about this in more uh, view because when the plagues come, there's something to do with the blood and the Nile. I'm just going out on a limb here that God's using this to go. There's innocent blood in the Nile River, and this is going to come up against you. Again, when we read, kind of looking forward and looking back when we know the story. And so we'll get there and we'll quote ourselves back to here again. But just to see and understand kind of how the Bible works. Chapter 1 ends with the midwives. They're faithful to God. They do what's right. And so God blesses them with families. But then all the nation, all boys are going to be thrown into the Nile and they're going to be killed. And so that's why I wanted to read into verse 2 because I want to show you that even in the midst of slavery, oppression, just a a culture and and a world that we can't even imagine, and yet God goes, there's still hope in the midst of this because I'm still at work. And so we could spend time talking about how it says in verse 1, a man from the house of Levi took his wife, a Levite woman. Why is that significant? Well, actually, because God's going to use the Levite tribe in a very specific way. And so we're just getting little pictures of what's moving forward, and that Moses and that his brother Aaron are going to be Levites. We'll talk about that more. But you see the plan uh, from his mom, and and there's another little side note here. She makes a basket. Um, I'm not going to read that sentence again. Um, But she makes the basket because it says here that she saw the child was a fine child. Well, actually, in the Hebrew, it's the same wording that you find in Genesis. When God creates, he saw that it was good. He saw that Moses was good. And so it's not as though, man, this was a really attractive child, right? Like that's kind of how it reads. Like, man, she saw he was like without blemish or something. But the point being is that this is God's plan of salvation and he has created him and he is good. Now he's going to do a lot of dumb stuff. But he's also going to be the one person And I literally mean that the one person in all of the nation of Israel that refuses to give up on God and chooses to follow after him. So while there's good, or sorry, while there's some bad decisions, Moses does a lot of great stuff. And so again, we see the sovereignty of God at work, and this is just miraculous. So already they've been under oppression, and yet they grow more. Well, that's a miracle in of itself. But now there's this baby, and this baby is in the water in this little basket, and who finds him? The daughter of the person who made the decree that every one of my people should kill every baby boy that you find. So this is like, this is not just some random person. And so God obviously causes compassion in her and she goes, no, I'm not going to do this. And then you kind of see the story unfold further where where Moses' sister is kind of like watching to see what's going to happen. It's like, oh, oh, do you need someone to nurse the child? Let me go get the biological mother. And for the next four years, Moses is going to be able to be in that home with his biological mother. Uh, God is at work in all of this. The fact that Pharaoh's daughter says to her, yeah, yeah, go do this plan. This is a good plan. This is a crazy plan, isn't it? Like for, for Moses' sister to be standing there and to go, hey, can I intervene and do this? Like that should probably cost her her life, shouldn't it? 
Pharaoh's daughter, this should probably cost her life that she is unwilling to follow after what the king, what the Pharaoh is commanding. See, what God is doing is you can't miss it if you start to slow down and read it in the sense that God is at work because none of these things would have happened in the midst of all this chaos. But God goes, no, I got purpose. I have plan for this child. And when this child grows up, great things are going to happen. And we're going to talk a great deal about Moses. We're going to talk about his name. We're going to talk about the plan of salvation that comes uh, through this plan through Moses. But the thing I want to note is um, something that Kenneth Harris writes. And he said it wasn't as though the people of Israel needed rescue from Egypt as much as they needed to put their alliances and their trust fully and wholly in not only a new king, but a new king. If that makes sense. It wasn't that they just needed rescue from Pharaoh. It's that they needed brand new identity and they needed to be following after the one true God who's the only one who can save. And for us in, in our world, right, we may not be able to relate very much in some ways. But who is our allegiance to? Who are we choosing to follow after? Or maybe I should say, what are we choosing to follow after? Are we willing to do what's right the way that the midwives do because we fear God and we know what's right and we will do what's right no matter the cost? Or if we are going through pain and hurt and suffering right now, are we trying to flee and escape that suffering more than we are trying to run towards Jesus? It's not your circumstances that you need salvation from. It's our sin that we need salvation from. And our circumstances can often lead us to that place where we go, I need a miracle if I'm going to get out of this position, and God goes, exactly. I don't know the specifics of why you're going through the hurt that you're going through. But I do know that God is at work through it. And I do know that God wants to use that to bring you closer to him and to show his name to other people. God is sovereign. And God is a jealous God, and that's a good thing. It's through all these people in the story that we get to see, man, God is at work. And I hope and I pray that for each one of us that's true as well. That the, the commentary on our world, the people watching us, our coworkers, our friends, uh, the people that we run into at the grocery store, whatever it is, I hope that they see us and they see, man, not our good deeds, not our, you know, perfect hearts because we know they're not but they see someone who's writing the story of salvation the same way the israelites are going to do this this well ultimately that god does for the people of egypt so that they see friends i don't know what's going on in your life specifically today but i know that god is at work not always easy. It's not always fun. Life experience probably tells most of us it's less often easy than it is hard. But that's good because that means we can step back, we can put our arms around Jesus, and we can let him carry us through stuff that we don't know how to get through. God is at work in the mess. Let's pray.
God, thank you for these verses and this story that we're going to unpack in these next few weeks and months. And that as we read, I, I pray that we would read attentively and, and do our homework and look for context and markers and patterns and things that, that point us towards you because what we're going to learn is that you are faithful. And as we have already sung, that you are loyal and that what you promise will be done. And so as we go from this place today to whatever you have for us next, may we remember not to just focus on fleeing our circumstances, but may we focus on running towards you. May we be a light to the world that points others to Jesus. God, thank you for this text now. Be with us in these coming days. We love you. We thank you for all that you're doing. Amen. Thank you again for joining us. Just, just two quick reminders. There are snacks, but uh, Lorena is at the back, and she's in charge of all who stay for decorating and undecorating, and I have no authority. So it's all on Lorena. So if you have a question, if you want to help, please go talk with her. Uh, I don't know what her plans are. After taken down, maybe we'll set up for the next thing. I don't know. So you go find her if you'd like to help. Uh, and if you're visiting and you have questions for us or about the community, come find us. We'd love to talk to you. We hope you all have a wonderful week. Just a reminder, I'm away, so the office is closed this week. I'm at seminary, but I will be back for next Sunday. We'll see you then.